London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. My guest today is Jungian analyst Richard Sweeney. He holds a Master of Arts in English Literature from Xavier University and master's degrees in both philosophy and theology from the Athenaeum of Ohio's Mount St. Mary's Seminary. He was ordained as a Roman Catholic priest for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, where he remained for 19 years. During that time, he received his doctorate in psychology and religion from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. He later returned to the Athenaeum of Ohio and taught as an associate professor of pastoral psychology and counseling and served as the school's academic dean. While spending a year's sabbatical in Zurich, Switzerland, he decided to stay and went on to earn his diploma in analytical psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst from the C.G. Jung Institute, Zurich. He also taught counseling at The Ohio State University and taught the psychology of religion at the University of Dayton, Xavier University, and Mount St. Joseph University. Dr. Sweeney is the founding chairperson of the Ohio Valley Association of Jungian Analysts and continues to be an active member of the international faculty wing of the Jung Institute in Zurich. He is also a former chairman of the board of directors of the C.G. Jung Association of Central Ohio. Having left the priesthood in 1993, Dr. Sweeney and his wife, Ellen Kandoyan Sweeney, also a Jungian analyst, are now in private practice at the Jung House in Columbus, Ohio. He delivered this year's annual Claire Bowser Lecture in June, titled Dreams and the Dynamics of Transformation, which is the subject of our talk today. This interview was recorded on Thursday, November 2nd, 2017 through the magic of Skype. Dr. Sweeney, you recently delivered the second annual Claire Bowser lecture at the Jung Association of Central Ohio in Columbus uh, called Dreams and the Dynamics of Transformation. And although I wasn't able to attend, um, you were kind enough to send me a copy of the recording, which is wonderful. I highly recommend it. And at the end, I will give information on how people can purchase a copy of this. It's five audio CDs of the Friday night lecture and the Saturday workshop that you did with the attendees where you discuss dreams and specifically Jungian dream theory. So what I was thinking, what I was wondering was how is it that Jung's theory on dreams differs from other theories out there on dreams? And I also was wondering, kind of, how did all this start with Jung as far as his interest in dreams and, and how and why dreams became so important to Jungian analysis? Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. I'd be happy to uh, just start with that as we talk a bit about dreams and the, the dynamics of transformation. Uh, of course, in talking about Jung and, and dreams, I think we have to start also with Freud, mm-hmm. because certainly it was his uh, interaction with Freud and uh, shared experience with Freud that reinforced in his own mind, I think, the the importance and the significance of dreams and the various ways in which the unconscious, the less conscious parts of 
ourselves speak to us. So just to say a word about that, of course, uh, you know, Freud's interpretation of dreams came out in 1900, and one of his more famous statements is that dreams uh, are expressions of uh, wish fulfillments, or uh, dreams are an attempt to fulfill wishes that that we have, uh, maybe even wishes to resolve conflicts from earlier in life. And I think ultimately um, Jung expanded that a bit, and in my mind, ultimately uh, decided that the fundamental wish in the psyche itself is the wish for wholeness, uh, for completeness, for the the realization of the personality of oneself, and that pretty much guided his particular way of looking at dreams, namely this belief that there is at work in the psyche an innate tendency to search for wholeness or completeness or the realization of self. And eventually he he gave that innate tendency the term the transcendent function within the psyche. And really what he meant by that is that uh, there's an innate process in us whereby movements from our own unconscious try to transcend or, or go beyond our current outlook or conscious viewpoint, which is always limited and always incomplete. Mm-hmm. And so the unconscious, via fantasies and dream images, frequent emotions, even repetitive behaviors, are a way in which something at work within us uh, tries to usher us in the direction of greater wholeness. Okay, or, so l- l- let me interrupt you here. So you're saying, yeah. are you saying that Jung differed from Freud and Jung saw something else, that Freud sort of saw it one way and Jung came to see it another way? I mean, how did Jung come to this conclusion is that that's what was really going on with dreams? How did, did he come to that over time? Uh, yes, I think he did come to that over time in his work with Freud. And I'm putting it a little bit too simply, but uh, Freud believed that many of the issues that come up in dreams are reflections of past issues, mm-hmm. uh, particularly issues that emerged earlier in our life that remain unresolved. And so a lot of his initial dream interpretation had to do with looking at the dream and then going into the past to see what uh, unresolved conflicts, particularly from childhood, might be reflected there. I think Jung saw that, but increasingly, as he looked at his own dreams and the dreams of others, began to sense that there's something more than just that going on in the dream. Mm -hmm. There's also the emergence of new material that seems to want to take us to, to another place. Uh, to places and experiences and realizations that have not yet happened in our life. And uh, it's what led him to believe that there's another layer of the unconscious, which he called the collective unconscious, which in some ways is kind of the repository of the whole evolutionary history of the human race. And at times, um, images and impulses and desires emerge uh, from within us that that are are relatively new and 
and uh, even balance or compensate our past experiences. And uh, of course, he called that the archetypal realm. <clears throat> and in that sense, he sort of differed from Freud or, or moved beyond Freud. And of course, it was one of their points of contention, mm. which uh, eventually led to their uh, parting company and their theories. Okay, would you explain to us, because there seems to be a lot of question about archetypes, what would you define archetype for us? Uh, yes, I certainly define it in the words that make sense to me. I, I think archetypes refer to uh, innate um, sources of wisdom and guidance uh, within the psyche, within our unconscious, um, and they function very much like instincts. Uh, some might even say they're the, the psychic, imaginal aspect of, of instincts. And they emerge in our experience to, as instincts do, to protect and promote the well-being of the psyche uh, or the realization of who we are and who we're meant to be. So at times we uh, experience certain longings, we experience uh, fantasies, we experience recurrent emotions. And uh, they may largely be archetypal in that they derive from this innate movement within us that's sort of guiding us toward uh, becoming more whole, more integrated, uh, more of who we're actually called to be. And the specific archetypal themes or images that come forward are the ones we need right now in our, our current life circumstances, our current situation, or even in the current cultural situation. So uh, Jung believes that uh, there was this innate source of wisdom or guidance within the psyche, and he called that the archetypal realm. Mm -hmm. You know, the language of the unconscious, and certainly the language of archetypes, is, is symbolic. And for Jung, a symbol... Uh, is the best possible expression of something that still remains partly unknown. So uh, the images that come to us in our waking fantasies, or certainly the images that show up in dreams, are symbols of something that's trying to find its way into consciousness a bit more, um, trying to... Uh, bring us to an awareness that right now we need a little bit more for the living of our current life. Mm -hmm. So what's, what but would I, be an example of a symbol then? Yeah, let me give an example then if I might uh, briefly refer to a, a dream, hopefully kind of succinctly. It's a dream of a woman, about 50, who in the dream she appears in a room of all men, um, and she's almost acting like a lawyer. She's not a lawyer in real life. Mm -hmm. And she's speaking in front of a male judge and in some way defending a man. But it's all male setting. Then she experiences in the dream an urge, an almost irresistible urge to wash her hair. And she does wash her hair. And as she does that, the scene changes. And now she's in a room with women, uh, largely all women, and there's a voice that says, where is the queen? And at that moment, the queen walks into the room with kind of a numinous aspect to her, 
and the dreamer is struck by an entirely different energy. Now, in my mind, the queen is a good image, an archetype. Mm-hmm. You know, we might, might say it's the image of a, a more feminine authority, a female authority, and the dream seems to imply that, that that's what's been missing a bit in her life. And as she washes her hair, which is a fairly frequent symbol of uh, cleansing one's thinking or one's thought processes or shifting that a bit, suddenly it releases a whole new set of energy and awareness of uh, maybe something that needs to come into her way being a bit more fully. Mm-hmm. So the queen is a symbol, uh, an image of something becoming a bit more known, but entirely what it is is not yet completely known. I, I would just like to say from my personal experience, it was very difficult for me when I was in analysis to look at dreams and to even just look at my life symbolically. That was all so new to me because mm-hmm. I have a science background. I think in black and white terms, I have a very strong sensation function, and I'm not intuitive at all. And so every time I hear an analyst interpret a dream, I'm always surprised because that kind of thinking just does not come naturally to me. So Mm -hmm. I would love to encourage people to keep in the back of their mind, what could this mean beside what I think it means? Or uh, what else could this mean? And if, if there any, anything like me, I would look at things as, you know, I would take, I take things literally. I mean, I I have to say, so that's great. And when I heard you during this lecture on the CDs, you cover a lot of different kinds of dreams. um, And, when I would hear you, your interpretation of them, I was always thinking, wow, I never would have thought of that. And um, so if you want to continue on this, and then I'd like to talk about some of the the other archetypes that that come up um, just sort of for, for most of us. I was very surprised. I don't know why, but I was surprised to hear you mention some of the themes that are common for people to have in dreams because I had some of those as well. For instance, being back in school. Yeah. Having to take an exam and realizing, oh no, it's tomorrow and I didn't study for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good example of certainly an archetypal theme. You know, every one of us has the experience of in some way having to pass a test or perform adequately or rise to the occasion. And in the development of every person, uh, that becomes a part of their life experience. So we might say it's universal uh, or it's or it's archetypal. Uh, <clears throat> so many dream images will have that archetypal or universal component that is something we encounter uh, in all of our experience. I was going to say, if I might introduce here another, of course, prominent Jungian term relevant in dreams, and that's complex. And I think oftentimes uh, noticing the interplay of complex and archetype 
in dreams mm-hmm. really helps reveal um, the meaning or what it is any one of us is contending with at this time in our life. Mm-hmm. So just to say a word about complex, yeah. um, and of course it's a, it's a term that uh, Jung coined on the basis of his early research, but uh, a complex in Jung's mind is a very emotionally charged theme uh, or issue uh, in the unconscious that's shaped by past experiences. Uh, so it's a theme, it's a motif, it's an issue that's shaped by what happened to us earlier in life. And it's heavily charged emotionally and oftentimes functions autonomously, it almost takes us over emotionally. Um, and uh, can sometimes disrupt our behavior or get in the way of something else we might be wanting to do. If I just give a real quick example of that, and it's a dream from a man with a very uh, mathematical background and profession who himself tended to look at things in very black and white, concrete um, ways. But he had a simple little dream in a way where he's at a cemetery and he's walking by a grave and then he notices suddenly up out of the grave, there's an arm that pops through the earth and it has a hammer in it. And uh, he, he said, I have no idea what in the heck that dream means. I remember asking him, well, was the gravesite familiar? And he said, well, actually, it, it did look a lot like my father's gravesite. And so I said, well, what about the hammer? And as soon as I asked him that, he had a strong emotional reaction. He said, oh, a hammer. Uh, that's the one thing I could never use effectively. Mm. And uh, my father used to always belittle me for being so clumsy and uh, not handy and uh, not able to do a lot of the things that I assumed a boy and a man is supposed to be able to do. So the dream was bringing right up to the surface a complex of his a certain feeling of inferiority about himself in terms of handiness, in terms of being very practical, and rooted in some of the critique or shaming he felt he got from his father. Well, I'm glad you mentioned this because one of the things that I always point out when somebody is talking about, um, I, I had somebody, I think on Twitter, say, send me your dreams and I will interpret them for you or these very popular dream dictionaries. And what I've learned, what I learned in analysis is that it's my association with those dream images that's what's important. And so how could a stranger on Twitter interpret my dream for me when there's no interaction, no dialogue? And so, for instance, with the dream example you just gave, he wouldn't know that dreamer's association with the hammer and his relationship with his father, he would just look, he mm-hmm. would just interpret the symbols in this general way. And so would you say a little bit about how important it is to ask the dreamer what their associations are? Or are they? Uh, yes. Yes. In terms of trying to understand the meaning of a image in, in a dream, um, of course, one can look at the uh, universal you might have with that, you know, like a hammer is something to do with uh, forceful assertion or something like that. Uh, but really, it, 
it's most important at the beginning to find out what the personal associations of the dreamer are. Uh, Because as you said, uh, the hammer has a very different meaning in this particular person's dream because of his personal life experience, Uh, just as maybe a coffin shows up in a dream. And it can mean uh, any number of things that could be very much shaped by a person's own experience. And so we do have to get uh, familiar with that. Thinking of another dream of someone, uh, a dream of a man flying, flying a plane, being in a plane. Well, you know, the plane might have something to do with uh, seeking a higher perspective or getting to another place in one's life. But uh, this particular dream, uh, dreamer's father was actually a pilot of the plane. So that gave um, the plane symbol a very different meaning. It had more to do for him of his father being away a lot of the time and not very present. So it's that personal association that often gets a little bit more to the heart of the meaning of this particular image for this dreamer. Mm-hmm. And that's important. And so I had interrupted you and you were talking about complexes in dreams. And so what do we take from that? So the the person with the dream about the hammer and the coffin and you kind of unearthing their complex what happens mm-hmm. then? Where, do, where does mm-hmm. he go from there? Mm-hmm. Well, um, again, I think one of the things that has to be discerned in the dream is, is this image or is what's being presented in this dream laden with quite a bit of complex material, past experience of mine that's coming to the surface because it, it needs to be made a bit more conscious. It, it needs to be resolved in some way. So like for this man and the hammer, in effect, what was bringing to the surface was some of his own feelings of inferiority, uh, inferiority as a man, still haunted him at times. And right, so it's, it's, these, mm-hmm. it's showing him that. And, and so if he's sitting there in the consultation room with you and, and you uncover that complex, so the dream is showing you this complex is at work right now and you need to pay attention to it. Is that then kind of the purpose of the dream is to get one's attention and say, Hey, this complex is at work here and we need to do some work around this. Is that value? Right. That's very much the case. It's like the dream is saying, Uh, this complex continues to insert itself or erupt in in your life now and oftentimes leaves you feeling uncertain, uh, inferior, or hesitant in certain areas. So we need to to work with that. We need to discover, gee, where did that that come from in you? And what do you feel inside yourself when that happens? And is that something you want to continue to affirm in your life? Or is this past experience... It's not really true of who you more fully are, not really true in terms of all the other successes and movements you've made in your life. So in the work we have to, to use a kind of a technical phrase, gradually depotentiate that complex or try to lessen the amount of energy in that so that other parts of the personality, other archetypal potentials within a person may come forward a bit more. Uh, and and they may feel confident to go with those. 
because complexes, uh, and they're not always negative, um, but they're always restrictive. They always restrict the energy in the psyche to uh, past experience and past messages. And uh, oftentimes there's another archetypal movement within the self that one that transcends that, to take us beyond that complex so that we can live into other other aspects of ourself, like the woman with the queen. Mm-hmm. It's like the psyche wants to bring more queen, feminine authority into the way in which she's currently approaching her life. You know, a major sort of foundational principle or even the linchpin, so to speak, of Jung's theory of dreams is his belief in the compensatory function of dreams. Jung believed that most dreams are largely compensatory. That is to say, they bring forward what's currently needed to balance, uh, round out, make more whole a person's current approach to life or current way of perceiving things. It's as if my current outlook, my current behavior may not be all wrong by any means, but it's incomplete. It, it, it's one-sided. Okay. And there's something else that I need to see, value, or appreciate more. So the dreams are compensating or balancing my current approach to life. Uh, and I think you believe that most dreams are of that type. Now, mm-hmm. I like to say, and this is a little bit more of a development beyond Jung's thought, Uh, Some people have talked about different kinds of compensation, confirming and corrective Mm -hmm. to be two kinds. And confirming uh, dreams are dreams in which the the dream is trying to support or confirm something that the dreamer doesn't trust enough or maybe doesn't believe in enough. And in dreams like that, uh, the situation, the dream usually gets better as it proceeds Uh, At the end of the dream, the situation is more positive, and it's as if the dream is is confirming something that the dreamer needs to trust more and go with. Uh, Just a little example of that, a woman was running her own business and doing it rather well, but not always with great confidence, sometimes thinking she was uh, just fooling other people. It's a dream where um, she's in her house and she's told that Barbara Streisand has arrived to talk with her. So she lets her in and Barbara Streisand comes in and says to her, I wanted to consult with you. I wanted to get your advice on a number of different topics and think that could be very helpful to me. And the woman in the dream is, is astounded. Now, I asked her what's her association with Barbara Streisand. She said, well, she's about the most confident, competent, multi-talented person, woman I can think of. And I said, well, it's interesting. We have a dream here in which she's coming to consult with you. So she thinks you have quite a bit to offer. And by the end of the dream, she was feeling very self-enhanced. Now, to me, that's kind of a confirming compensation where an archetypal figure shows up to uh, encourage the dreamer to trust something, to go with it, to incorporate it into their life a bit more. And those dreams usually have a more positive uh, end to them. On the other hand, some compensatory dreams are more corrective. And those are dreams in which... um, 
the situation at the end of the dream is usually worse than it was at the beginning. Mm -hmm. In a certain sense, the dream kind of goes downhill. And there are dreams in which the uh, unconscious is trying to adjust or correct the way in which the dreamer is currently approaching things uh, as if it's too one-sided and not really promoting wholeness. Um, I'll give you a quick example of that. Um, A woman in her 60s had retired but was feeling for financial reasons with some pressure from her husband that she had to go back to work in uh, hospital work is what is what she did. She did it very reluctantly but feeling that she was obligated to do that. Um, so she has a dream where she's walking down the hospital hallway uh, on the job and there's a man, a patient down the hall who's protesting and angry and upset and everyone's trying to control him and she calmly walks down and injects him with a hypodermic needle to silence him and does it very comfortably but then there's a crawfish in the hallway strange figure a crawfish that starts coming after her and she's very frightened and the crawfish grabs her by the heel and starts to pull her backward, pull her away from the man, and pull her actually away from the hallway altogether. And then she's quite disturbed and quite anxious. So it's a curious dream in which an archetypal image of a crawfish, something that has a more instinctive quality or function in her psyche, something she probably feels more as as an urge or a need, uh, grabs hold of her and pulls her away from what she's trying to do. And her only association with crawfish is she said, well, when I was growing up by the river we lived by, I remember there were crawdads or something, and they always moved backwards. Mm -hmm. I understood they went to the water backwards. So here's a crawfish coming up, pulling her away from what she's trying to do. And at the end of the dream, she feels a little worse than she did at the beginning. To me, that's a dream where the image that's emerging is trying to correct or adjust or call into question the attitude with which he's trying to approach things. And in my view, and she was trying to silence uh, another part of herself that was protesting what she was requiring herself to do by going uh, back to the hospital work. So... uh, Interestingly enough, she's not afraid of silencing the figure, but she's very afraid of the crawfish. So I don't know if it makes sense, but it, it's it's a dream that emerges to compensate or balance or to call into question the conscious approach to life the dreamer is undertaking, and in this case, doing so in a in a corrective fashion. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, we'll get dreams like that when we're living out a complex. Uh, a feeling of should or ought or requirement that we're having to do that actually goes against the needs of our soul. So we'll get dreams that point that out to us. Yeah, the dream shows up. And for the most part, I would say most people will maybe remember some of it, maybe remember none of it. Mm -hmm. Does the dream have any benefit if we don't work with it? 
Do we benefit just from having the dream? Mm-hmm. Well, there are different opinions about that. Um, I believe, and I think you find some of this in Jung's own writing, is that the dream has some benefit, uh, even if we don't remember much of it at all. It's some part of our unconscious is expressing itself, uh, and the very expression of it is is cathartic. And uh, even if we don't remember the dream or even just remember bits and pieces of the dream, uh, it very likely has some effect. I don't know if you're familiar with the new recent development in psychology and psychotherapy of uh, EMDR work, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, Mm -hmm. uh, which is rooted in the belief that rapid eye movement, which is what goes on in many of our dreams, that the very process of moving eyes back and forth is a processing conflictual material. So um, that research suggests that the dream process itself does have a function of processing uh, tension-related material, even if we don't uh, bring it into recall. Mm -hmm. But of course, the more we can recall it, the more we can actually interact with the dream, the more we can bring a bit more into our awareness what's going on more deeply within us, then it has much more benefit. I was reading something Jung wrote uh, a while back about looking at a sequence of dreams of week to week if he was working with somebody on a dream and they came to a stopping point, they waited for the next dream that he felt that it would be a continuation. So our dreams, do they continue the same message? Well, um, in some ways, I think that's that's often the case. Um, I think generally dreams bring forward something that has been relevant or operative in our life within the last 24 to 48 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there is a, a current issue or theme that uh, is particularly heavily charged for us, we probably will get uh, a series of dreams that in different ways are a commentary on that. But, but of course, our lives are complex enough that uh, there's never just one issue operative in our life at any one time. Right. There may be any number of issues. And so uh, the dreams may bring up different elements of that. You know, one dream may seem to have a lot to do with a relational issue in one's life. Something else has to do with my sense of professional competence or incompetence. And another dream may bring up residue from my uh, family of origin. Uh, But whatever comes up in some ways has been activated by what's currently going on in one's life. And what would you say about setting intentions for, for information? Because I had heard you say that dreams convey wisdom and if you're looking for an answer to a dilemma or an issue or wondering why you're blocked somewhere or even how to resolve something in particular, what what do you say about people who talk about setting intentions to get the dream to speak to them? Mm -hmm. Well, I I think it's a very useful thing to set an intention to... And and let me just say, do you think that it's possible to set that intention and then get that answer? 
Uh, I don't think it's quite that simple. No, <laughs> okay. I think it. I think it's. I think it's helpful to have a desire uh, to receive some help from the dream world or from the unconscious, and to have the intention of really wanting to be open to what what might be given to me uh, tonight when I go to sleep, and to be receptive. And it, it's certainly okay to ask for a particular resolution of a of a question or a conflict. But um, what the dream world gives us back is uh, uh, comes from another source, and rarely is it exactly what we were expecting or exactly what we consciously were looking for. Comes from uh, another source. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, it, it comes from uh, the unconscious, the less conscious aspect of ourself, uh, other dimensions of our reality that may know what will serve our current need for wholeness more than we do consciously. So we may be asking for something that in fact is actually the wrong thing. I remember some years ago, a a man um, who was trying to resolve a problem at work in the company that he actually owned and and ran. And he had the question of, uh, okay, how do I get to the next level of my work or get the, the company to another place? And he had a dream where he's moving from one train to another uh, on track, and a woman, unknown woman, appears and says, the next stop will be the most difficult for you. And he didn't know what it meant, but he stepped onto the next train, and it went backwards and continued to go backwards. And uh, he was perplexed by that dream. But the dream is if we're suggesting that in some ways uh, what's needed is the opposite of what he was trying mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not to put more energy into things, take more control, and try to steer things in a particular direction. It almost had more to do with letting go and letting things take a different course mm-hmm. and even being a little bit more passive and receptive. So sometimes dreams, of course, will give us Uh, or respond in a way that's quite a bit different from what we were asking for because um, our conscious outlook is by no means ever complete. And that's what the dream is often going to compensate. Mm, Yeah. When we were speaking just a few minutes ago, I kind of, I had this idea that it sort of sounded like what we were saying was that the dreams were coming from someplace outside of us. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that, that, of course, is a great question, and even uh, the phrase outside of us is a bit of a symbol. Uh, in other words, we don't entirely know even what we're completely talking about when we talk about something outside of us, uh, but we're acknowledging the fact that it's certainly outside our conscious self. Mm-hmm. It's outside our current level of awareness, um, and When we say it comes from the unconscious, of course, we don't completely know what the unconscious is. Uh, We're talking about our past experiences, but much more than that. And in Jung's own writing late in life, he began to talk about that, you know, the soul of the world, the anima mundi. Mm -hmm. And it's as if psyche exists outside of and beyond any individual and it's an expression of the totality of reality. So, yes, the the wisdom comes from outside of our 
conscious self. And we can say it comes from my unconscious, but I don't really know where my unconscious begins and ends and where it intersects with the world itself. Uh, because sometimes intuitions come to us uh, from without, and maybe something in our experience of what we might call external reality uh, manifests itself as well. So, and I don't know if that makes sense, but I think it's what Jung himself was increasingly interested in in uh, about the last third of his life and his work. Yes. Yeah, and... I wonder if that's where some of the controversy comes in with Jung, because I don't mind holding both, you know, the, the scientific world d doesn't like, I think, what you just said. And the, the, the other world, I don't even know what to call it right now, is constantly seems angry with science. So having those two coexist is something that's very important to me. And I just, actually, there's something going on right now in the news where, you know, one side is battling the other. And it's very disturbing to me because I don't know how both sides, I can see them coexisting, but each side is not taking in the other. Do you know what I mean? So I don't know yeah. if you could say a little bit about that, but I just, it's a very pressing issue right now. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it is a pressing issue, and of course it was a very pressing issue in Jung's own time, whereas you may know he was sometimes very much critiqued by the scientific world mm -hmm. for being insufficiently uh, scientific mm -hmm. uh, and too mystical. But he was also critiqued at time by the world of religion and spirituality for trying to root or connect spiritual experience with the psyche and psychic phenomena that were actually observable. So he was right in the center of that uh, conflict and uh, trying to hold those opposites in tension were, I think, very much what he was striving to do. Uh, but I think even among scientists, there is uh, that openness to the way in which uh, um, understandings and insight comes uh, creatively. And, of course, one classic example is uh, Gakule's yeah. uh, discovery of the nature of the uh, benzene carbon. And originally in his research was thinking of it uh, in a linear fashion, and then he has the dream where... There's the uh, snake eating its tail, which is the Euroboric symbol. Right. And as he awakened with that image, there was sort of this aha sense that he had, like, well, that's it. Uh, the benzene carbon is, is circular. Uh, <clears throat> that's the answer. So sometimes uh, information or knowledge comes even to many scientists in a more intuitive way. You know, which then can be subjected to experimentation to test it, but the the insight or the wisdom that often comes in a different way, in a more intuitive or symbolic expression of the unconscious. So I think that that contrast between uh, different ways of knowing will will always be there, and of course, respecting both sides of that is the critical element. You mentioned briefly. Uh, when you were talking about Jung and 
holding the tension of the opposites. And as long, <laughs> while we're here, um, would you say mm -hmm. a little bit about that? Because I think that that is very essential to uh, Jung's psychology, to Jungian psychology in general. Uh, yes, it's certainly the way in which Jung viewed the psychodynamics or uh, psychic processes in general. I think he very much was of the opinion that it's not unique to him. You find it also in uh, certainly Eastern philosophy, certainly in Taoism, certainly in the whole theory of the uh, interplay of yin and yang in life. But it, it's the notion that, um, you know, as we develop, um, we usually develop by becoming aware of, of one attribute or one trait or one way of being, and we develop that, but the opposite trait or way of being remains less attended to and, uh, so to speak, falls into the unconscious or what Jung was called the shadow. So let's say one develops a capacity to be very accepting and tolerant uh, and undervalues the importance of being assertive or, or direct in some way. Or let's say someone develops, a, gives a lot of energy to work and productivity, but undervalues uh, leisure, uh, rest, and spontaneity. And we only become aware of something and develop something by differentiating it from its opposite. But from Jung's view, most of the conflicts and difficulties we have in our life come from being too one-sided mm -hmm. and having undervalued other viewpoints or attributes or needs or ways of being. And it's the undervaluing of those that creates conflict in our life, uh, or what he would call neurosis. Mm -hmm. And so uh, becoming whole has something to do with when it's needed, beginning to incorporate or honor or recognize the opposite, uh, the opposite tendency, the opposite way of being that's uh, been undervalued uh, in our life, but that we need now. Can I give you a very quick, pretty contemporary yes, example of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a woman uh, in her 50s had a, a dream in which she goes into a restaurant by herself, uh, which she rarely does, uh, and this is a wife and mother of a couple of children who are now raised. She goes into the restaurant, sits down at the table, but no one waits on her. No one comes over to serve her at all. And then she notices a group of men walk into the restaurant and sit at the table, and in the center of that group is Donald Trump. That's a very current image. Mm -hmm. If Donald Trump sits down at the table, the waiters completely then go right over to his table, uh, address him, and ask him what he wants. And he pronounces very strongly, I want the King Kong entree. It's quite an image. I want the King Kong entree. And they respond immediately. Now, uh, this is this woman's dream. Donald Trump is a symbol. Uh, is an image of a particular way of being. You might say forceful, dominant, uh, uh, assertive, very much expecting to be served. Mm -hmm. and this is a very undeveloped side of this woman who has spent most mm -hmm. of her life feeling her job was serving others, meeting their needs. And so here she has a dream where a shadow quality to her 
the undervalued, undeveloped opposite, you know, forcefulness, uh, assertion, expecting one's own need to be served or attended to, she encounters that and experiences the um, <clears throat> the power of that. So I, I think it's a dream where the neglected opposite sets of traits show up and her need to get more access to that becomes more apparent. Mm-hmm. So again, the dream is compensatory, mm-hmm. showing her the, the attributes that now uh, are more needed in her life. And so when when somebody is in analysis, because I'm a big proponent of Jungian analysis, and that's one of the reasons why I do this podcast is to get it out there that it is an option to other forms of therapy. Um, would you tell us a little bit about how you work with the dreams of your clients? How does that work? Is that necessary when you're in Jungian analysis to work with your dreams? Is that the main way to look at what's going on in the unconscious? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would say it's it's not necessary. Okay. Uh, it is definitely helpful, uh, very helpful. Uh, in, in working analytically with people, of course, uh, my view or my approach, and that of any analyst, I think, is that uh, uh, we're trying to observe what's going on right now in the experience of this person. You know, what's going on uh, beyond their conscious life. So we might pay a lot of attention. What are the emotions that keep uh, manifesting themselves right now for this person? Because the emotions are symbolic. They express something that's going on, manifesting itself. It's not entirely conscious yet, maybe insufficiently honored. Or we might look at the repetitive behaviors, what, what's going on over and over again for them in ways that don't resolve conflict but seem to reinforce it. Uh, or we might look at physical symptoms, what's happening in their body uh, right now. Uh, maybe they're overweight. Maybe they're having trouble with, with eating or something like that. Or uh, maybe they have a lot of back pain. All of these are, are symbolic expressions of what's going on in the psyche. And even if they don't remember their dreams uh, when we start, oftentimes they may begin to after we begin, uh, there are many other ways to try to notice what the symbolic expressions of the unconscious are and how they're trying to compensate or bring forward what needs to become more conscious um, in, in their life. That's very interesting and a really great point. You brought up and used as an example back pain. That is something that I've had a lot, I've heard a lot of people talk about and um tell me about their back pain. And it just seems like that there seems to be a lot of that going on right now. And um, you, the way you explained it is that it's a symptom of what's going on in the psyche. Is that what you said? Uh, it certainly can be. Yes. Yes. You know, I wouldn't say it is always 100% to that. I mean, a person may have had an accident of some sort, but uh, yeah, very often there is a symbolic expression there. It is reflecting something uh, that's going on with the psyche. Yeah, and let's go even further than that. And I, I'm don't I don't want to be afraid to go there because yeah. I, I've I've heard people get blasted for this, even if it's an accident. 
okay? Even if it's an accident, it's still to me along those same lines that there's something going on in the psyche and then eventually gradually it manifests okay Mm -hmm. and it can as an accident or as an illness and i was Mm -hmm. at a conference a number of years ago and the speaker on the stage this wasn't a jungian related thing it was something else was talking about how we're all responsible for our diseases and our illnesses and a woman in the audience got up and just she was just in a rage that she's like how could you how could you blame a child for developing cancer you know it was just this extreme example Mm -hmm. but still would you say that i mean it's just it's so hard. We're so, I just think we're so conditioned to look at it as we're this innocent child developing this horrible disease. So how could you say that it's a manifestation of something um, going on in the psyche? But I don't know. I mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, what would you say yeah. about that? That things that we manifest physically being linked and tied and to the psyche... Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a very challenging question, an important yeah. one. I guess here is I come back to Jung's stuff, of course, theory of the opposites and his belief in, um, you know, keeping the opposite uh, points of view or perspectives in tension. So, for example, to say that one is completely responsible for one's physical illnesses and accidents, to me, that's a little bit too one-sided. Okay. Yes, there probably is some responsibility. Um, there may be other factors uh, beyond uh, my complete control. So uh, there's a certain non-responsibility that's also in play. And I think keeping both of those mm-hmm. uh, intention avoids the tendency for people to feel very self-blaming or guilt-ridden even about their accidents and illnesses. Okay, so you're saying but, two two words here, intention, keeping them in tension, in, in, not, in not dialogue, the word, yeah. right, not the word intention, just because yeah. Skype and things just aren't very clear. I just want to point that out. Keeping them yeah. in space, in tension. tension or right. in dialogue. Okay. So I think it's always useful to probe the question, to what extent am I responsible? To what extent is this accident or this illness, might it be shaped by something going on in my life or decisions and behaviors? Uh, To what extent might that be so? Um, But I think it's good also to be open to the fact that there may be genetic influences uh, for which I individually am not personally responsible. Now, maybe some of those genetic conditions that go back into one's ancestry have psychic components to them as well. Ultimately, we don't know. Um, So I think uh, keeping those questions in dialogue, yes, what what is the psychic meaning of these physical reactions I'm having and and this illness? What is psyche saying to me about uh, conflict or tension I'm carrying within the, the, the body and and maybe an adjustment that's needed, um, but also recognizing there may be forces and factors that are beyond my complete conscious control, so I don't need to blame myself um, uh, intensely. 
mm-hmm. I think it's important to keep that that okay. dialogue. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. Uh, maybe just to, to summarize a little bit, just in terms of the basic um, steps you might speak of in terms of dream interpretation, we have talked about it, but maybe just to summarize that briefly mm-hmm. might be useful. Um, okay. So, for example... This is usually about four or five steps one might go through and uh, working with the dream. Uh, so the first thing is to present the dream as, as fully as possible in the first person, in the present tense. So if I'm going to write it down or recall it, doing so in the present tense, you know, I'm walking up the steep hill or I, I seem to be uh, falling into the water and I'm feeling overwhelmed, putting it in the prince, uh, present tense keeps it quite alive. And again, it's good to capture as much as we can. Even a few images, even a fragment is is quite useful and and revealing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then secondly, we kind of amplify the images. You know, what does uh, uh, being on an airplane mean? Or what would I associate with uh, a hammer? Or And first of all, usually it's best to start with one's personal associations, what that means to me. Then we usually move from that to uh, the archetypal associations, which really means kind of universally, what would this image probably mean to to many people? Um, You know, like flying has something to do with getting to another place, uh, getting away from one's current situation. Uh, so it's good to bring in some of those more universal meanings that might amplify or, or extend uh, the meaning of the image. I think it's also good to sometimes look at the cultural associations. What might that mean? Uh, like a woman has a dream of wearing a burqa, you know, a more Islamic garment, and standing on stage and performing. And, uh, of course, Culturally, that image of a burqa has a lot to do with um, hiding some aspects of one's feminine self, we mm-hmm. might say. Mm-hmm. That was part of the issue for this woman that she often she had to perform in her particular area of work and in life in general. And that meant hiding uh, certain other feelings and needs and desires she might have. So sometimes in bringing in the, these cultural uh associations as part of the amplification. Then eventually, kind of thirdly, uh, we begin to situate the dream in my current life context. So what's going on in my life now? And to what extent or in what way might this dream be uh, compensating or or balancing or, or commenting on what's going on in my, my current life context? Mm-hmm. So if I have a dream that I'm I'm back in the classroom and worried about having forgotten that I'm I'm taking a test. Well, there must be something in my current life situation that's activated, shall we say, performance anxiety and the feeling of being unprepared. So again, in that sort of third step, we try to situate the dream within um, my current life situation to find out in what way is the, the dream commenting on that. And it might not just be my personal life situation. It, it might be what's going on in my culture right now. Yeah, you had mentioned that. Yeah, would you say a little bit about that? That was kind of something that I had not considered. 
Yeah, well, um, of course, Jung has a famous dream or vision he talked about when he was having a dream of, of blood kind right. of pouring across Western Europe and another dream image where uh, Western Europe had turned to ice and he wondered what was going on with that and gradually came to get a sense. It was his experience of what was uh, transpiring in Western Europe at the time at the outbreak of World War One. So the dream images that he was having was a reflection more of what, what's going on within the culture. And sometimes our dreams may be uh, laden with, with some of that. Um, um, you know, if people have dreams of buildings and structures. Um, it, it may have a lot to do with how I currently experience the structure of modern life or institutional aspects and structures uh, in life which may be, might be too imposing or uninviting or um, so it has a certain commentary on my personal life but maybe it's also commenting on how I'm experiencing the, the cultural situation in, in the present world. Let, so let me think, just ask you one, one question if I might interrupt you again. Yeah. Something that I thought of that I have heard people ask is, how come we don't just dream the whatever message it is that we're supposed to get? Why doesn't it just come out and say it? You know, why doesn't it just say it literally? Why so complicated and symbolic and just like, what does this mean? And just so weird. Why that way? Why don't we just get, hey, this is what's going on? <laughs> yeah, that is a frequent question people have, and it's a good question. But I think when we ask that question, uh, it's like we're wanting the unconscious to be literal yes. and, and conceptual and get the message reduced down to something very clear and specific. And uh, very often I think what the dream is bringing is something much larger than that. Um, it's not able to be reduced down to something as simple as, let's say, you're working too hard. That may be a part of it, but the dream has much more uh, embedded in it. It may say something about uh, my relationship with my childhood or my tendency to compare myself to, to others and uh, <clears throat> or certain aptitudes that are still underground for me. All of that may be part of why I work too hard. And so the dream gives us the whole picture of what pertains to this particular uh, issue. Okay. Uh, very quickly, thinking of a man who had a dream of uh, climbing a mountain, a mountain that uh, seemed to get taller and taller, and uh, was very cold. The more he climbed the mountain, the colder it got at the top. And then he notices at the very top of the mountain is the person in his particular profession that is the number one most successful, most accomplished person who actually won the Nobel Prize. Mm. And then he notices his parents standing uh, up there uh, with this other figure. And as hard as he climbs, he can never quite get there. Now, this man came into analysis because of depression and anxiety and obsessiveness. And so if you were to ask the question, what do I need to do differently? You know, I might say, well, don't work so hard. Mm -hmm. But that's a very simplistic uh, 
uh, answer to the the whole reality of what's transpiring in his life. And the dream gives more of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, brings back his father's message to him that the world only cares about successful people and you must be successful more than I was. And how deeply that's embedded in his psyche, uh, why he strives so hard, why he feels he needs to live up to his parental expectation, why he compares himself with other persons and then gets depressed. And however successful he is, it's never quite enough. Mm-hmm. So the dream carries all of that material, and it's much more... Um, <clears throat> complex and comprehensive then don't work so hard or something like that. I had interrupted your summary. Do you know where we left off? Yeah, the third step, at least the way I think of it, is situating the dream within the life context. You know, number one is presenting the dream mm-hmm. as thoroughly as one can. Number two is amplifying or extending the meaning of different images. Number three is situating the dream within the life context of the dreamer. And then number four is beginning the process of gleaning the meaning of the dream by asking uh, how is the dream compensating, completing, or or balancing my approach to life. Uh, I might look at the four-part dramatic structure of the dream. We haven't talked so much about that, but a lot of it has to do with you know, where's the climactic moment in the dream where all the energy comes to a head? Yeah. And now now what the, the dream ego, and that's always myself in the dream. Uh, how does it react? How does it behave? And does the dream get better or does the dream go downhill? Uh, oftentimes that sheds a little bit of light. And how was I feeling at the beginning of the dream? How was I feeling at the end? Sort of playing with some of those questions may uh, help suggest how the dream is compensating or trying to adjust my current approach to things. Number five, I think of as in some way responding to or acting upon the meaning of the dream as I currently understand it. And of course, we never completely understand it. We're always trying to get more of what's being suggested But in some way, trying to honor the dream uh, is a way of incorporating it or assimilating it into my way of life. And sometimes just writing it down is a way of honoring the dream. Talking about it with with someone else is honoring the dream, thinking about it. But there are other things we we might do as well. Uh, We can actually work with the dream a bit more by, let's say, dialoguing or having a conversation with a dream image you know, with this hammer in the dream or asking the queen where she's been and what she might bring to my life or something like that. That kind of dialogue, of course, is what Jung does pretty much throughout the Red Book, as you may well know. It's about active imagination or dialoguing with images. So that can be helpful. Um, Imagining what might have done uh, been done differently in the dream is a way of uh, continuing to work with it. Uh, dreaming the dream forward, maybe the dream ends at the climactic moment, right. which is true of a lot of a lot of nightmares. So I might imagine, okay, what what might happen? So I was standing on that precipice, afraid I might fall. So let me imagine that uh, maybe I do fall. What do I imagine happening? And 
that can be rather interesting to move beyond that point of anxiety, which is sometimes where we where we wake up. So that can be useful. They give us a little bit of a sense of where the unconscious is trying to take us, maybe to, to lower our standards or expectations and get a little more grounded, perhaps, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are, I think, ways of trying to work with the dream and then we might even work with one's outer life a little bit in reaction to the dream. You know, maybe I decide, okay, I need to alter or adjust the behavior a little bit more. Uh, the woman with the mm-hmm. Donald Trump in the restaurant, okay, maybe I need to uh, put my own needs front and center and make sure they get served a bit more. So maybe I need to try doing that. Usually it feels a little uncomfortable or different, but just an inspiration or a desire that shows up in the in the dream, or if I feel erotic attraction in the dream to some figure, say, okay, there must be something I'm desiring that that other image or figure embodies symbolically. Wonder what that is. I'm feeling a need for something like that, right? So that's really number five, which is sort of ongoing the mm-hmm. uh, process of trying to honor the dream and test out different ways to respond to it. What would be your comeback to somebody who wants to look at a dream literally, take it literally, say it's a premonition that Donald Trump in that dream was Donald Trump and that that was saying something about Donald Trump, the person? Why is the Jungian dream interpretation, why does it not look at the dream literally? Well, I like to, maybe it's kind of simplistic, but I like to come back to the fact, well, now, let's start with the fact this is your dream. You had this dream uh, last night yourself, and these are the images that come to you and speak to you. So we usually start with the notion that, that all the images in the dream are about me, about my psychology, about my fears, my feelings, my unfulfilled hopes and dreams. Mm-hmm. So all the figures in the dream are, are my figures because sometimes they'll behave very differently from the way some of those people do in their outer life. Um, so I think that's what we always have to come back to. We can qualify it a little bit if it's a person in a dream that I currently know and I have an ongoing relationship with in some way, like it's my boss at work, and they're behaving very much in character, well, then that image might point to them, but still the dream is telling me about my feeling about them or my relationship with them or my interaction with them. So the, the fact that it is my dream and it comes to me in my experience, I think we have to kind of stay in that realm and not too quickly move to the uh, assumption that's telling me something uh, that's a premonition or it's telling me an awful lot about that other person. Mm-hmm. I mean, those things may sometimes be true, but generally speaking, I think that's not the heart of what's happening in the dream. Okay. Right. I'll say one more thing about that. So that going back to the Donald Trump dream, somebody could say, oh, well, that dream is just telling me what I already know, that he's a very dominant and and rather overbearing and demanding person. Well, the dream never just tells us something we already know. 
it's trying to bring something into consciousness that I'm not sufficiently aware of. And in that sense, it's probably telling me something about myself and, and my, my own experience and my own reality. I was wondering if there were any books that you would recommend on this topic, Dr. Sweeney. Uh, yes, there certainly are a few books. There's quite a number of books out on dreams, but uh, I do like a few books that uh, are very much part of Jungian literature. A book I like very much is a book, Understanding Dreams, uh, by Marianne Mattoon. It's M-A-T-T-O-O-N. I think that's a very good, thorough presentation of uh, dreaming from a Jungian perspective, which is a few more later developments that some Jungians have uh, brought to Jungian theory. Uh, there's another book by James Hall called uh, Interpretation of Dreams, or Jungian Dream Interpretation, I think is the actual title, Jungian Dream Interpretation by James Hall. Uh, Robert Johnson has written a very good, very readable book called Inner Work. I think that's also uh, quite good. And the last one I'd mention is a book called Dreams, a, a Portal to the Source by two authors, two analysts, uh, Whitmont and Pereira. Um, I think that book's also uh, quite good. So those are just a few. Do you have any presentations scheduled for the future? Uh, I don't currently write at this point. Um, very likely I probably will be doing a presentation next year for the Cincinnati Young Association, uh, possibly also the Young Association of Miami Valley. They asked me to do a couple of things, but we haven't scheduled a date quite yet. I was going to say I hope to get back to, um, to Zurich um, Sometime I have uh, been able to do some presentations at the Young Institute, but it's been a few years now since I've been back over there. Um, so I hope to try to make a return trip over there within another year or two, possibly. Okay, great. And when you do schedule things, I'll make sure to add them to your page on the website. And I would just would like to thank you again for your time today, Dr. Sweeney. If anybody would like to purchase a copy of your presentation, Dreams and the Dynamics of Transformation, Gus Brunsman recorded it. The audio quality is excellent. It's on five audio CDs and it's just wonderful. Um, so I will have information on how you can purchase that directly from Gus on our website. Thank you again, Dr. Sweeney. It was a pleasure talking with you. Okay, well, likewise, I enjoyed it very much, and thanks for the opportunity. I'd like to again thank Dr. Sweeney for his time today, and I look forward to speaking with him again in the future. You can find links to everything that was mentioned today on our website, speakingofjung.com. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast which are available to listen to or to download for free. The episodes are also available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and a whole host of other listening platforms, which you can find links to on our About page. With special thanks to Gina Peacock and Gus Brunsman of the Jung Association of Central Ohio, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.